Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. And we are going to read starting at verse 9. Perhaps one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. Jesus says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We come in our ongoing study of Matthew to an extremely familiar portion of Scripture. One which most of you probably did not have to have read to you because you could recite it almost without thinking. Uh, this is what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, but which many pastors and theologians <clears throat> tell us should be more properly called the Disciples' Prayer or my personal preference, the Model Prayer. Uh, the prayer itself actually ends with verse 13, but Jesus gave an addendum in verses 14 and 15 to explain an element of it. You know, Jesus did not intend for us to recite this prayer word for word, but that is what started happening not long after his ascension back to heaven, as early as the second century. Uh, a document now referred to as the Didache uh, prescribed that Christians should repeat this prayer three times a day. That's not necessarily bad, just as it is not necessarily bad to repeat it in unison at church services. But we must never do so thoughtlessly, and we should remember that Jesus himself conceived of the prayer as a model. He said, this is how you should pray, not this is what you should pray. This prayer is going to be our study for weeks to come. Uh, you can't study this in a hurry. Uh, despite the sermons I have heard, and I can show you on the internet, I don't believe that you can possibly deal with this prayer in one week in a manner which does justice to it, and I'll try this morning to explain why. Normally when I teach, I introduce a passage of scripture and then begin to exposit it. Uh, I've had long introductions before, but only once before did I ever give a lesson which filled the entire teaching time in class and didn't get to the text. Uh, but I'm going to do that today, I think. Uh, you could say I'm going to give you, what I'm going to do is give you an overview of this model prayer. The reason I want to do that is that I think it is absolutely essential <clears throat> in order to have a full understanding of how vitally important the truths we gain from this prayer are for our spiritual life. I hope that when we're done with our study, it'll be life-changing for all of us in terms of our spiritual life. I believe that it can do for our prayer life what the Beatitudes do in our areas of commitment and consecration as followers of Christ. Uh, it's monumental in terms of its instructive capability. Uh, 
You know, most people focus on prayer only in response or reference to how it works, not what it's for. We tend very much to be pragmatist. Prayer for us has become a means to an end. And that end is usually a selfish one. One person said that Christians offer their prayers like sailors use their pumps only when the ship leaks. Uh, that's generally true. Prayer for most Christians is sort of a last-ditch effort. Uh, it's kind of like a spiritual parachute. You're glad it's there, but you hope you never have to use it. Uh, prayer has a way of being given the wrong perspective because we see it our way instead of God's way. And so as we study, I hope you will see that prayer is not primarily for us. It is for God. Prayer is not so much to gain for us what we think we need as it is to give to God an opportunity to manifest his glory. Prayer is for God. Only incidentally and as a byproduct is it for us. If we never gained anything from prayer but the communion with God that prayer really is, that should be sufficient to make prayer a constant thing. Imagine the reality that when you pray, you are entering the very throne room of God and communing with the maker of the universe. And even if that was all there was to prayer, that itself should be sufficient to draw us to pray constantly. So as we face this tremendous portion of scripture, <clears throat> we are facing one of the most vital subjects in all of the Christian life. Much has been discussed about prayer. Uh, much has been taught about prayer. And yet it is perhaps one of the most misunderstood parts of the Christian life. Much has been discussed about prayer, and yet it is perhaps so misunderstood. We just can't get beyond that. Believers must learn how to pray in order to experience the fullness of communion with God. Uh, in order to open the floodgates of heaven and to know the fullness of blessing from God. And to do that, we must pray as Jesus prayed. This prayer, which is our pattern, will teach us how to do that. If we do not know how to pray and what to pray for, then it does us little good to continually go through the motions. If, however, we do know for what to pray for and how to pray, then Paul's instruction to pray without ceasing will have a tremendous importance to us. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. Scripture teaches a great deal about the importance and power of prayer. Prayer makes a difference. Prayer is effective. It works. Abraham's servant prayed and Rebekah appeared. Jacob prayed and Esau's mind was turned from 20 years of desiring revenge. Joshua prayed and Achan was discovered. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. David prayed and Ahithophel's counsel was ignored by Absalom. 
Asa prayed and the Ethiopian army was defeated. Jehoshaphat prayed and God defeated the Moabites and the Ammonites. Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed and in 12 hours, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died and the Jews didn't even have to fight them. Elisha prayed and a child was raised from the dead. Believers prayed and Peter was released from jail. So it goes all through scripture. I believe prayer works. I believe prayer is effective because there's a record of its effectiveness revealed to us in scripture. But beyond that, there is the explicit statement of the word of God itself that prayer is effective. Anybody remember what James 5.16 says? Yeah, the, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, yeah. And then James illustrates his point with this statement about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. <clears throat> and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. You say, but that's Elijah. He was God's servant, his prophet. Of course God will answer his prayers. But did you notice that little phrase that James threw in there? Elijah was a man with a nature like who? Ours. His point is that if God answered Elijah's prayer, God will answer our prayers. We will not be able to pray for the same things because we don't have special revelation from God that such is his will. However, when we pray in agreement with God's will, we have the same right to expect God to move. God answers prayer very specifically and very directly. Remember now, we said before that as we studied the previous portion of this Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is correcting the Jews' false understanding of how to be righteous and how to live righteously, both in relation to others and in relation to God. And he begins in chapter 5 to explain the characteristics of God's true children. They recognize their poverty before God. They mourn over their sin. They're gentle. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They strive to make peace, and as a result, they're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Then they serve as God's salt and light in the world, and their lives are characterized by good works and obedience to God's moral law. And he gives six illustrations of how and where they went off the rails in terms of internal righteousness, murder, adultery, divorce, vows, revenge, and love. And now in chapter 6, he begins zeroing in on their religious activities and how they went off the rails in those areas also. And here he picks out three illustrations. They're giving, they're praying, and they're fasting. Now let me just say that of the three illustrations that he uses here in discussing their religious activity, the greater emphasis is placed on praying because prayer is the most important. Giving is important. But you're going to give properly only when you're in ongoing communion with God and your heart's filled with gratitude for what he's done for you. And so you respond to his promptings to give. And apart from prayer, fasting 
is nothing more than dieting. Uh, it is meaningless without the aspect of prayer. So the concept of prayer is then very basic to all giving and to all fasting. And that's why Jesus concentrates most of what he says about these three religious activities on the subject of praying. And he is challenging the religion of his day. And he's saying, in effect, your prayers, just like your giving and your fasting, are substandard. And before anyone says, well, those scribes and Pharisees back then really blew it, no wonder Jesus had to go after them. Let me just say that our religious practices today are in many cases just as substandard and just as inadequate as those of the Jews of Jesus' day. There is plenty of giving going on today that is entirely for self-glory. There are plenty of evangelicals who make sure that all of their friends on Facebook find out how they've been praying and fasting about something recently, and it's all done to call attention to their supposed holiness. And there's plenty of praying going on that is a pretense, praying that doesn't recognize the basic biblical divine standards for true prayer. In fact, in Romans 8, 26, the Apostle Paul said this about the church. We do not know how to pray as we should. That tells us two things. One, that we don't know what to pray for. And two, that we don't know how we ought to pray about the things that we don't know what to pray for. Therefore, he says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. In other words, God is ever and always aiding our prayers because we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. And so we have the same problem that the Jews of Jesus' day had. <clears throat> and so as we begin, we need to determine what the purpose of prayer really is. And then from there, we can move into the process of looking at each part of this incredible pattern for prayer that Jesus gives us. Now, let me add one other thing here. There are two ultimate tests of true spirituality. One is the study of the word, and the other is prayer. Those are the two ultimate tests of true spirituality, and I believe the study of the word comes first. Why? Because we don't even know how to pray until we first know what the Bible teaches about God, about his will, about our lives, and about our problems. Therefore, it's the study of the word of God that gives birth to a meaningful prayer life. So you can't pray in a vacuum. It's not virtuous to say, well, my friend never studies the Bible, but she prays all the time. Well, if she would study the Bible a little bit, she could probably cut down the time she needs to pray because she would eliminate a lot of superfluous stuff. When Jesus gave a pattern for prayer, let me just call your attention to the fact it was very brief. It, it isn't how long your prayer is. It's whether your prayer touches on the vital and necessary elements. And frankly, you can do it in 57 words like Jesus did, or you can do it all night long as long as it intersects with those elements. But the study of the Word of God comes first. Let me show you what I mean. 
there are people who plead with God to give them the Holy Spirit. But they already have the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? There are people who plead with Christ for strength. Philippians 4.13 says, You can do all things through him who strengthens you. I've heard people stand up and pray, Lord, please be with us. And Jesus already said, Lo, I'm with you always. There are people who plead for love for someone. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what's my point? It's simply this. You don't need God to give those things to you because you already have them. You just need to let them out. What I'm saying is that unless we understand the truth of the word of God, <clears throat> we don't really know how to pray. So the two so that the two ultimate tests for spiritual maturity are the study of the word of God and as a corollary prayer that is guided by a comprehension of God's truth. And when we study God's word and discover God's truth, we discover also the real condition of our own hearts, the real condition of our own spiritual lives. And that drives us into a private personal prayer where we open up our hearts to God. In my own life, nothing drives me to prayer as much as opening up God's word, whether studying it in order to teach or simply listening to it as I take my morning walk. Whenever I do those two things, I find myself praying about things that my studying or my listening bring to my mind. Often it's sin in my life. Other times it's a decision that has to be made. Other times it's intercessory prayer for someone else who I know is going through some particularly difficult time. But it is the word of God which incites my heart to pray. Now, as Jesus is teaching here about the failure of the Jews to pray with the right attitude and with the right perspective towards God, he tells them in verses 5 to 8 how not to pray. And then in verses 9 to 15, how to pray. And you might think that prayer was not a priority for them or else Jesus wouldn't have had to give them instruction on how to do it. <clears throat> but that wasn't the case at all. Because the Jews had given a priority place to prayer. But over time, they had abandoned the purity of genuine prayer. And they had forsaken real prayer for the routine and the ritual of their religious exercises. They have their little formulas, their little set prayers that they prayed at set times. And by the time Jesus came, all of their ritualistic praying had supplanted the reality of genuine prayer. Many people read this model prayer and think, well, this is something brand new. Not really. Not in total, it isn't. It's simply a reaffirmation of something very old, like everything else in the Sermon on the Mount. The content of this prayer was a reiteration of what the Old Testament had called them to do in terms of their prayer life. If you recall, back in chapter 5, verse 17, Shortly after Jesus started this entire sermon, you remember what he said? He said, 
Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. In other words, he was saying, look, I didn't come to take away anything from the Old Testament, nor to add anything to it. I'm coming to affirm the Old Testament. In fact, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I'm here just to remind you of the purity that God wants. And when it comes to prayer, he affirms to them things they should have known and should have been incorporating into their prayers. So let me give you some of the historic Jewish prayer perspective. First, the Jews believed that they had a right to pray. The Old Testament Jews believed that they had the right to come before God. That was a major part of their life experience. They continually desired to come to God because they believed God wanted them there. They didn't come to God like the pagans do in fear and trembling. They didn't come to God in a panic. They came because they really believed God wanted them to come. In fact, the rabbis said this, the Holy One yearns for the prayers of the righteous. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Psalm 91.15 says, He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and listen and, and honor him. Psalm 65.2 says, O oh, you who hear prayer, to you all men come. In other words, the word of God revealed that God wanted to hear their prayers, the cry of their hearts. No true Jew with a right spirit ever doubted God's priority for prayer. Now the Jewish rabbis went a step further. They taught that prayer should be constant. They tried to teach the people to avoid praying only when you get desperate. They wanted people to pray all the time. And so the Talmud, the, the central text of rabbinic teaching, says this. Honor the physician before you have need of him. That's a good way to say it. It continues. The Holy One says, Just as it is my office to cause the rain and the dew to fall and make the plants to grow and sustain man, so art thou bound to pray before me and to praise me in accordance with my works. Thou shalt not say I am in prosperity, wherefore shall I pray? But when misfortune befalls me, then will I come and supplicate. No, before misfortune comes, anticipate and pray. End quote. So the rabbis taught that prayer was not some kind of an emergency appeal. Prayer is an unbroken conversation built around a living, loving fellowship with God. They were right about that, weren't they? weren't they? They were right on the money. They had the right perspective. Prayer was communion with God. It was to be unbroken fellowship. Prayer was to a God who wanted to hear them, who really cared, and whose mind was uncluttered by the multitude of prayers. And that's true. In fact, if you go back and study what they wrote about prayer, you come away with a whole bunch of excellent things that they taught should be a part of prayer. They thought prayer should be, should incorporate love and praise. 
so that when you go to God, there ought to be a sense of his worthiness and a loving adoration um, of who he is and praise to him. They felt that prayer should incorporate gratitude or thanksgiving. They believed that their prayer should incorporate a sense of God's holiness, a sense of awe, a sense of reverence. They didn't rush into the presence of God flippantly. Uh, they didn't treat God as if he were a man. They went very reverently. They realized when they entered into prayer, they came face to face with God. They also taught that in their prayers, there should be a patent desire to obey God. That you shouldn't pray unless your heart was truly right before God. You were not to go to God if you weren't really committed to respond to God with obedience. And they included the importance of confession of sin. When they went to God, they knew that they were unclean and that there was to be a purging of sin in a pure heart. And they believed that the prayer of the righteous would turn the heart of God, that God would listen and respond to their prayers. Further, they believed that prayer was to be unselfish and it was to be concerned for others and for the nation as a whole. It's interesting. Let me give you an example of one of their prayers there. Very interesting. Here's what it said. <clears throat> Hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. Think about that now. It's interesting. Hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. In other words, don't listen to the prayer of the traveler, Lord. Now, what do we usually pray for when we travel? Yeah, good weather, tra merciful travel, right? We say, Lord, I'm going on this trip, so please don't let it rain or snow or whatever. Just give us good weather, safety on the highway. And in those days, they traveled most of the time on foot. So when they went on a journey, the traveler would pray for good weather and accommodating skies, an easy journey, no robbers on the road. The rabbi says, Lord, don't listen to that prayer because that's one guy on one trip. He may be praying for a fair day, but everybody in that part of the country knows that their crops need rain. So, Lord, don't do something for someone that messes up what's need to be done for the majority. They had a sense that prayer was to be unselfish and concerned for others rather than themselves. That's a great perspective in prayer that most of us, uh, because most of us come to the Lord with a whole lot of personal pronouns, don't we? It's I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. And we pray isolated prayers. Lord, please do this for me. Lord, I need to have this. Lord, I'm having such and such a problem. And we don't spend time praying for others. But God has a master plan for his kingdom and everything fits together. And sometime we ought to sacrifice what might in our own minds seem best for us because God has a greater plan for the whole. And we need to pray for him to accomplish his purposes for our church, for our nation, for our fellow believers. We don't always have that perspective. But when the Old Testament Jews went to pray, they would say, Lord, do what advances your cause among your people, not what I want personally. 
That's why you find no singular pronouns in this model prayer. You ever notice that? It's always our Father, our daily bread, our debts, our debtors. Do not lead us, deliver us. Why? Because true prayer encompasses the community of faith. It never isolates one individual out to have their needs met, no matter how it affects everyone else. Prayer was to be unselfish. So the Jews believed that the proper elements of prayer were love and praise, gratitude and thanksgiving, recognition of God's holiness, a desire to please and obey God, confession of sin, and a pure heart, unselfishness, and next, perseverance. They believed that you were just to continue to pray. Don't give up. Just hang in there. The apostle Paul prayed for the Lord to remove a thorn in the flesh. He didn't do it. He prayed again. He didn't do it. So he prayed a third time. Perseverance. After Israel sinned with a golden calf, Deuteronomy 9, 18 to 20, tells us that Moses fell down and prayed for 40 days that God would spare the nation and would relent from destroying them for their sin. That's perseverance. Finally, an element of their prayers was humility. Humility. A true Jew entered into prayer, who entered into prayer, knew that he was to submit himself to the will of God. The greatest illustration of this is from the heart of the truest Jew that ever lived, and that's the prayer of the Lord Jesus in the garden. When he set aside what seemed to, to him to be the most comfortable scene, uh, comfortable thing, and he says what? Not my will, but yours be done. That's the heart of the truest prayer. Lord, I'm here to say, do your will. I want to align myself up with that. Listen, prayer is not asking God to do my will. It is bringing myself into conformity with his will. It is asking him to do his will and to give me the grace to enjoy it. Now, all of those elements are part of the traditional or were part of the traditional prayer life of a true Jew. In fact, one rabbi said that man cannot come into the presence of God unless he brings his heart in his hands. And so the Jews had a great heritage of prayer. And that's the history of the Jewish prayer perspective. But something went wrong, and it became hypocritical. And in verse 5, Jesus says they prayed to be seen by men. He says they're phonies, and they aren't talking to God anymore, and they're selfish, and they're trying to gain things for their own ends, and they're, trying, they're, they're putting on a public display, and they go with this meaningless repetition like the pagans, thinking that God's going to do something simply because he's so sick of hearing them, he'll just answer them to shut them up. And so then Jesus comes to verse 9, and he says, let me just reaffirm to you what righteous praying is really all about. And so what you have in verses 9 to 13 is Jesus reiterating the ingredients of prayer 
that came from the Old Testament, which were a part of the Jewish tradition. He doesn't say anything totally new, although he gives new richness to everything he says. He takes it further than it's ever gone, but it's the same basic truth. And we need to hear this today because in many cases, we don't know how to pray any better than they did. And so studying this marvelous model of prayer is going to be a great experience. Let me add another footnote here. Even though the Lord gives us instruction on how to pray here, instead of taking this prayer and learning, using it to learn how to pray, many people just recite it. I had the privilege of growing up in churches that taught me that this was not a prayer to recite, but a model for how to pray. At the same time, I had to memorize it. So there was a sense in which I was being taught that it, this was something to know so that I could recite it. Uh, and I've been in churches in which it was recited as part of the liturgy during the service. But reciting this prayer is not the point. I think it's fine if you want to recite it, just as it's fine to read any part of the Bible. But I, I don't think it's a prayer to be recited. Let me give you several reasons why. First, this prayer is recorded twice in Scripture. Here in Matthew 6 and again in Luke 11. And guess what? It differs in both places. It is substantially the same, but the words are different. If the Lord was giving us a prayer to be memorized and recited, he, would have given, he wouldn't have given us different words the two times he gave it, right? Just as an example, in the version in Matthew, he says, forgive us our debts. In the version in Luke, he says, forgive us our sins. The words debts and sins are different words in the original Greek language. And there are other words that differ in the two versions. In other words, if it was a rote routine prayer to be recited, at least he would have given it the same way both times. Now, someone might say, well, he gave it one time in Matthew and Luke just recorded it using different words. No, it's clear from the passages that it was on two different occasions when he gave the model prayer. The first was to a huge crowd in a sermon, and the second was at a time of instruction just with his disciples when they observed him praying and asked him to teach them how to pray. Second, in Luke 11, they said, teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us a prayer. It's one thing to have a prayer book and open it and read a prayer. It's something else to know how to pray. The Lord was not giving them a prayer. He was teaching them to pray. By the way, wouldn't it seem a little silly for Jesus to say in Matthew 6, 7, and when you're praying, do not lose, use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, and then immediately follow it by giving us a prayer that we're supposed to repeat so often that we don't even have to think about it? That would be totally ridiculous. It's meaningless repetition he's trying to avoid. Further, there's no occasion in the rest of the entire New Testament where this prayer was ever repeated by anyone. It's not a prayer to be turned into a ritual. It is a 
it's a model for every prayer you ever pray about whatever you pray about. It is a skeleton on which you put meat and flesh. So what Jesus is giving here is a prayer outline. That's all. These are the basic elements of prayer. It's just like an outline. You have to develop this into its meaningful expression in each and every different situation. I also want you to notice that Jesus doesn't teach us. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't teach us. He doesn't teach us about the posture of prayer because any posture will do. In the Bible, people prayed standing, lifting up their hands, sitting, kneeling, lifting up their eyes, bowing down, placing their head between their knees, pounding on their breast, facing a temple, and on and on. There was no specific posture. Notice that he doesn't tell us anything about the place of prayer. People in the Bible prayed in a battle, in a cave, in a closet, in a garden, on a mountainside, by a river, by the sea, in the street, in God's house. 1 Timothy 2.8 says, I want men in every place to pray. In the Bible, people prayed in bed, in a home, on a housetop, in a prison, by the sea, in solitude, in the wilderness, on a cross, and of course, even inside a fish. He doesn't tell us also about the times of prayer. In the Bible, you'll read people praying before sunrise, in the morning, in the evening, before meals, after meals, three times a day, at bedtime, at midnight, all kinds of times, praying when they're young, praying when they're old, when they're in trouble, when they're not in trouble, every day, always. So Jesus doesn't give us a specific time, a specific place, or a specific posture. There are some people who feel they have to put on to have their prayer shawl on when they pray. But in the Bible, you find people prayed in all kinds of circumstances and attitudes, sometimes wearing sackcloth, sometimes sitting in ashes, sometimes shaving their heads, smiting the breast, crying out, applying dust to their heads, tearing their garments, fasting, sighing, groaning, crying out loud, sweating blood, agonizing with broken hearts, broken spirits, pouring out their hearts, making an oath, offering a sacrifice, singing songs, offering praises, and so forth. Those aren't the issues. In any posture, at any time, any place, under any circumstance, in any attire, prayer is fitting because prayer is to be a total way of life. Prayer is an open communion with God that goes on at all times. Sometimes it becomes more concentrated and intense than other times. But prayer is a way of life. And if it's a way of life, then we need to understand how to pray. And that's precisely what Jesus teaches us here. This is to be the model for every prayer you ever pray. This is the pattern for all prayer. And it's compressed into a short form, which even a young child can understand. But which the most mature believer on earth can never fully comprehend. This prayer can be divided very simply into three elements and then three more elements. 
The first three deal with God and the second three deal with man. The first three relate to God's glory. The second three relate to man's need. The first three, the, the glory of God, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The second three, man's need, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, do not lead us into temptation. See, the point is this. First, when you pray, you set God in his rightful place. Then everything else flows out of that. All prayer is to begin with the character of God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then what follows? Our needs. So first we're to put God in his supreme place. And when God is first, then prayer makes sense. Another way to look at it is that the first three show the purpose in prayer. What's the purpose? To hallow the name of God. To bring in his kingdom. To do his will. That's the purpose of prayer. And what are the means by which his name is hallowed and his kingdom is lifted up and his will be done? By giving us our daily bread. That's provision. By forgiving us our sins. That's pardon. By leading us not into temptation. That's protection. As God provides, pardons, and protects, he consequently is exalted in his glory, in his kingdom, and in his will. How to view the elements of this particular prayer, this model prayer, are almost infinite. Only the mind of God could have conceived such a far-reaching, incredible thoughts and compressed them into such a tiny little section of Scripture. No man could ever have done it. Listen, prayer is never an attempt, it's, it's not to be, ever, an attempt to bend the will of God to my desire. Prayer is to bend me to fit the will of God. When I acknowledge God is sovereign, when I say, God, give me my daily bread, but only if it hallows your holy name. God, forgive my sins, but only if that exalts your kingdom. And Lord, do not lead me into temptation if that lets you be the master of my life. When all is said and done, the purpose of all prayer is found at the end of verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the point. Just look, look just at the last three elements. The bread is provision. The forgiveness of our sins is pardon. The leading not into temptation is protection. And you'll find the three time dimensions of life. Our daily bread is our present need. Our debts refers to our past sins. And lead us not refers to the future. <clears throat> this little prayer encompasses the past, present, and future provision, sustenance of God. Another way to see it is that the bread refers to our physical needs. The forgiveness of sin refers to our mental need for the relief of the anguish of guilt. And leading not into temptation refers to our need to maintain our spiritual walk. So whether you're talking about the past, the present, or the future, whether you're talking about our physical, mental, or spiritual needs, whatever it is you're talking about, it's here in this little prayer. 
By the way, with only one exception, all of the verbs in the petitions in this prayer, all of the verbs are in the imperative mood in the Greek. Now, normally you might think, well, an imperative is a command, Bruce. Are you saying that we're to command God to answer our prayers? No, that's not how the imperative is used in this case. When dealing with prayer petitions to God, the imperative adds a tremendous intensity to our request. No one is trying to command God to do anything. Rather, it adds intensity and urgency to the request that's being made. This use of the imperative was common in Koine Greek, particularly when someone who is considered inferior is making a request of someone who is considered superior. And since God is superior to everyone else, in most of the prayers found in Scripture, the requests which are made to him are in the imperative mood. It means the request is an intense pleading with him to do that which only he is able to do. There's an incredible brevity to every phrase of this prayer. And every phrase is intense. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There are no qualifying elements. Everything in this prayer seeks to glorify God, to lift up his name, to exalt his holiness. And that's the purpose of all prayer. Here's what John MacArthur writes about the purpose of this model prayer. Quote, the purpose of prayer is seen more in the overall thrust of these five verses than in any particular word or phrase. From beginning to end, the focus is on God, <clears throat> on his adoration, worthiness, and glory. Every aspect of true righteousness, the righteousness that characterizes God's kingdom citizens, focuses on him. Prayer could hardly be an exception. Prayer is not trying to get God to agree with us or to provide for our selfish desires. Prayer is affirming God's sovereignty, righteousness, and majesty and seeking to conform our desires and our purposes to his will and glory, end quote. So if you think prayer is for you, you've missed the point. And that's how we get messed up. We're praying for ourselves. We don't take into account the whole community of faith. We don't take into account the whole will of God and the parameters of his own kingdom. The famous missionary and seminary professor of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Samuel Swimmer, writes this about this prayer. Quote, every possible desire of the praying heart is contained in this. It contains a whole world of spiritual requirements. It combines in simple language every divine promise, every human sorrow and want, and every Christian longing for the good of others. End quote. So this prayer focuses on God. John 14, 13, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The reason you pray and the reason God answers is to put himself on display, to put his glory on display. That's it. When you pray for someone who's not saved and they come to Christ, that didn't happen for your glory. It's to show you God's power and salvation. When you have a physical need and you pray and God meets that needs, it isn't so that you can have what you want. It's so that God will receive the glory for meeting that need. His glory is the issue. So when you pray, get it through your head. You're not informing God about the situation. 
he needs to know about that. You know, you're not telling him something he, he doesn't already know and that he needs to hear. You're not forcing God's hand. You're not badgering him. You're not irritating him. You're not tricking him into doing something he hadn't planned to do. What you're doing is submitting to his sovereignty. So that brings us just to the introduction. And starting next week, we will begin looking at several aspects of it. We'll begin with God's person, and then we'll look at his plan, his provision, his pardon, his protection. And finally, we'll look at this little postscript in verses 14 and 15. And I didn't get to anything I wrote on the board. But we will next week. Any, any questions? community praying in mm -hmm. that we're not just praying just for ourselves and that just reminded me of the prophets and in the old testament and mm -hmm. when they would go to to god in prayer for the a nation of israel mm -hmm. they didn't say and your people have done this they said we have sinned right. against you god right we have followed they you. included themselves in that prayer when they prayed yeah. they did not say like this bunch of people over here, Lord, I'm righteous and I'm, I'm with you, Lord, but this bunch of people. No, they didn't do that. We have sinned, Lord. So, okay, anything else? Okay. Now that you've heard all this standard, Bart, would you close us with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for today. We thank you that uh, all the folks that are here today we're planned to be here today uh, for your purposes. And the lesson that was prepared was prepared today for our hearing. We pray that you use us this week to reach out to others and not miss the opportunity when we see people in the street or at 